Hello. Welcome to The Fix. The shortage of contractors across the UK is an issue every block manager faces. Building positive relationships can be the difference between a well-maintained building and a fine for non-compliance. In this episode of our Conversations with the Experts series, Nigel Glenn, Shelley Jacobs and Martin Perry recommend practical paths to improve communications, work respectfully and deliver better outcomes. Contractor management. The RICS code says we should have criteria in place, which includes checking identity. So they'll know your client. I asked for director's ID, such as passport, and many don't want to provide it. Do we need this level of ID or is just checking the company's house sufficient? Martin, shall I go to you first? I shall lay myself bare to criticism by confessing that if I understand this, what this is saying, right, I have never checked a contractor's identity in my life in that, in that way. For the, as in asking for a passport, you look at PI and all that sort of stuff, make sure they're covered and, and credit check. But yeah. Shelley, what about you? We ask for it from clients for Wix, but not yeah. from contractors. We, I mean, we go through a, quite a robust contractor vetting process where we get copies of their insurance and check the levels of insurance and all that kind of stuff, but not director's ID for contractors. No. Yeah, I've never asked for that. No, it's an interesting one. This introduces a real area of tension, I think, doesn't it, where your vetting processes, which you need to in, employ for compliance, can actually be a, a significant deterrent to smaller tradespeople coming to work for you because either they don't have the paperwork in place or they don't have the time or the inclination to give it to you. They don't like an officious approach to how you're managing them, yet they can actually be some of the best value tradespeople to put in situations for the clients because they haven't got masses of overheads and they're local and flexible and sometimes very skilled and often really nice people. It's sometimes difficult being able to cover both sides of that. Um, and I think this would probably be a good example that you take over a small tradesperson and ask him to do some work, and then you ask him to prove who he is. And you're on the back foot already, aren't you, in terms of the working relationship, I think. There was a really, I mean, are we in a situation at the moment, is this everybody's experience where we need these contractors more than they need us? Is that because that's how it feels to me at the moment with the way the construction industry is? It's such a world away from, say, 2010 when the effect of the financial crisis hit the construction industry and suddenly there was not very much work. And it was, it was extraordinarily easy to get good people to do work at a competitive rate. I'm now finding it extraordinarily difficult to get good people to do work at a competitive rate within a time scale that the clients expect. I don't know how other people are finding that, but mm. hopefully similar. Well, let's, let's check some because Emma's saying Rick says we should check the ID, so I'll look that one up afterwards. And then Mr. Henniker has come back saying, shouldn't it be the other way around? It's not the contractor should be getting looking at their client, which is what we said, that we check our clients, but not the other yeah. way around. Mm-hmm. A big thing is how do you actually find and then assess new contractors? You find them through Section 20s or taking over new sites. Well, I'm sure you've got other ways of doing it. But assessing things. I always used to find it was you find somebody small and good, they would take photos, be on time, great price, and then they get bigger and bigger, and then they start turning into the person who doesn't turn up and doesn't take a photograph. And then you have to go through the next cycle of finding the next contractor that does that. How is, has that changed since I was doing property management eight years ago? Well, it's the same, same for us. Yeah, it's yeah. There is a cycle with the with a sort of one man band type of people who, as Martin, you say, it's difficult to get them through the process. We 
sort of handhold them through that process a lot more than the bigger companies. But yeah, there's always an ebbs and flows of contracted performance. And again, it's another aspect of the job that we have to do that, that we don't get paid for that whole kind of contract and management process. But I suppose that is part of, of block management. But yeah, it is tough to find people. We tend to get people with more from new sites that we bring on and we inherit contractors and then we use them for other jobs. But it is the same, Nigel. Martin, same for you? Yeah, same for me. Yeah, we pick up new contractors with sites. We sometimes get rules. We sometimes get all referred to people on Section 20 consultations who actually turn out to be real fine, which can be really nice. And as just as you say, Nigel, the nature of some contractors' businesses changes as they become more successful or diversify or get more into one particular specialism or other, and then perhaps they become less suitable for the needs that we've got. I mean, there's another aspect to this, I think, isn't it? It's sort of the bridge between leaseholders' expectations and what's reasonable for a contractor. Because in the same way that we can't burn our bridges with our leaseholders, we can't really afford to burn our bridges with our contractors either. And sometimes I find that there's a significant tension there between how a leaseholder is asking you to absolutely take a contractor to the cleaners over something which you perhaps don't think is particularly bad as an issue. And you know that if you're you go don't blow that up with the contractor. That's going to be the end of your useful working relationship with that person, all for the sake of perhaps an unreasonable request from one client. It's another bit of lock manager arbitration, isn't it? Constantly yeah. doing conflict management with people. And, and it's a bit of a tightrope to walk sometimes. You know who are the good contractors and you've got to try and hang on to them, haven't you? Like the good stuff. Yeah, I had one of those where the board said, digging a hole to get down to a drain. This is when we looked across, we could see there's another cracked pipe. So we can do it now. Or we can come back in two years' time and dig another hole. What do you want to do? And we put that to the board and they said, oh, we can't possibly make that decision without a full cost-benefit analysis. And we're going, what? You want me to go to the drain digger and say, provide a cost-benefit analysis? It was just completely just out of touch with what they wanted. Bless them. What about communication with them? Do you, on a practical point of view, do you give people lots of details about where they're going to go, photographs, this is what needs to be done, and you expect them to do photographs and back, or is it just there's a bus, there's something broken on such and such a site, see the security guy when you get there and fix it and send us the bill. And how do you check on that? Because I've had a case where a contractor in my own block claimed to have done a £6,000 replacement of a water tank. I know he didn't because I lived there. How do you do that sort of aspect as well? So it's managing your contractors. Yeah, it's really difficult, isn't it? I mean, I've had a lead gusser, which was supposed to be replaced for some thousands of pounds and simply wasn't. To add insult to injury, my contracts manager at the time had signed it off as well. We we no longer, we had to part company with all parties involved in that sad incident, I'm afraid. And that was a, we covered a cost. But you can't go in and check everything, can you? So I guess you've got to set yourself some rules about what the reasonable expectation is in terms of cost, at which point the clients can expect you to have gone and had a look and make sure that things are okay. Um, communication with contractors we tend to do it how the contractor wants to be communicated with because that's what we find gets the best response we've got some guys who for example just love fixed flow and will do everything through fixed flow and it's fantastic and we've got some guys who think fixed flow is the worst possible creation ever when all they want to do is have stuff on a text or an email or just communicate by telephone Um, so we have to i think try and do what the contractor wants because then you get the best out of them Mm. Yeah, same same for us. And I think it also depends on the scale of the job as well. If it's something quite small, we don't necessarily need all, all the bump. But if it's something bigger, more expensive, then yeah, there's more intervention. But obviously, when property managers are on site, they're expected to check any works that have been done. Sometimes the contractors will send us photographs of the work. It, you know what I mean? It just it depends on the nature of what it is. Something, something, particularly during COVID, I remember saying, 
I was doing those weekly speeches about paying contractors, particularly the small guys, pay them quickly and you'll get better service. They'll come to your sites before they go to anybody else's because they know they're going to get the cash turned around quickly. And given that the interest rates were historically were so terrible for clients, it wasn't really disadvantaging the clients by moving the money out of their account into the contractors' accounts quickly. But I felt if there's a way to get contractors on side, that's one way of doing it. Make sure their invoices are paid really fast, no matter what. If they say 30 days, we'll put it at 15 or something and get the money out of the door for them. That's my own personal thing. Yeah, we do that as well. Yeah, we do. if there's money available, we pay our contractors as quickly as possible. The difficulty comes when you've got particularly a small site where you've got some arrears and you start running out of money. And then that becomes obviously a very difficult thing to manage because then you're managing two sides. You're managing the leaseholders who haven't paid the service charges and you're managing the contractors who need to get paid. And, you know, that there's that argument of we need to arrange these urgent works, but we don't quite have enough money. What do we do? So again, that becomes time-consuming, challenging. And can be a death spiral as well. In Australia, the second highest complaint to their ombudsman is the strata owners taking their own association to court for not doing works. And what happens is somebody doesn't pay. There's no forfeiture out there. So the works don't get done because there's enough money. So other people say, well, I'm not paying them because this place is a dump and I can't rent it out. And it just goes into a death spiral, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. called zombie apartments. I think Canada's got the same tricky one. We've got a couple of minutes left. James had a specific one. Is a driving license sufficient to satisfy a requirement for a small contractor ID? My, my instinct would be yes, because whenever I've been asked to do ID, it's been either copy of passport or photo driving license application because that has a stricture, a government stricture around it. Yeah, yeah I would have thought so, yeah. Yeah, I think so. Any other last words of wisdom on how to manage contractors? As I say, that to me... I found was always the most challenging bit because they're the people who can make your life miserable or happy and make your leaseholders miserable or happy. So contractor management was always a really, really important part. Quite difficult, as you say, Martin, every single contract is different and you have to have a different face for each one. I think yeah. it's about investing in the relationship with your contractors. Again, going back to that human thing, where obviously some of them are quite large companies, but where you can invest in building up a good relationship, I think that's a key step in the process. It's tricky, isn't it? It's our service delivery relies on third parties. Yeah. It's, it's a difficult model. And as a member, it was Emma Blaney who once said that people, when they first have a blown light bulb, their dad changes it two minutes later and they don't understand why in property management it takes two weeks or so. So you're on the back foot always with your maintenance. Yeah. And, and, and 65 quid, Nigel, for a light bulb. Sparky's caller, that always goes down well, doesn't it, at AGMs, so... <laughs> how much you're doing on that one yeah. all right well, i personally thank both of you for your time and your trouble and for answering questions on the hoof it's not easy 